Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, your words to us in the Mass. Um, day by day, we're hearing more serious warnings to take care, um, to make greater efforts to prepare the way. The readings are um, from Isaiah, um, flatten the mountains, fill up the valleys. He uses those images uh, metaphorically to remind us of just how hard what's being asked is. Um, to move mountains is not easy. Um, to change our sins is like moving a mountain. Pretty tough. Filling valleys. Um, we're all asked to take on greater hardships during this Advent season to make straight the path um, so that um, we move more easily to you, to, um, to be more one with you by taking on our sins more seriously, putting them away. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to do that, please. Heal us, all of us. Um, increase in us a spirit of humility, um, a greater courage to take you to the world. Um, help us to take all that we're learning here together, all of us, into the world um, to make you present so that others will come to you. Um, how wonderful to think that we could add to the mystical body, um, that we would know a greater joy um, for increased numbers. So help us to do that. I ask a special blessing on all of us in Advent to, um, to do this um, in a spirit of hope. It's a time for us to wait, to be patient, um, expectant, um, so that um, on Christmas um, we will know you more fully. And all of that is a prelude to the day when hopefully we will all see you um, in your kingdom. Take a joy in being present again together there with you. Let this be, please. We ask a um, special blessing on Larry, um, your dad, your father-in-law, Richard's father-in-law. Um, <laughs> sounds like a curmudgeon, tough man. Um, be with him in, this, in his recovery from the surgery. Let it go well. Whatever happens, um, let him be glad for the good life that he's had. Um, help him in his recovery. Uh, most of all, help him in his heart, in his faith. Um, Anne-Marie is the mother of the boy, yeah. yeah right. <clears throat> um, be with Afif, um, tough thing. Um, help him to a purgatory where he can recover himself and do the things that are needful for him to be to you. Forgive him, please, his sins. Help our, let our prayers help him to you as well. Um, especially be with those who love him, his mother and Marie, his relatives. Um, it will be a hard burden for them. Um, let the difficulty of it strengthen them in their faith, all of them. It has to be for all of us when we face um, sorrows like this. Um, and be with Valerie. Um, 
nine days from today. Um, um, help quiet her heart, meanwhile. Um, colonoscopies sound so innocuous, but um, we, we are anxious waiting to know the outcome. So quiet her heart, let this next nine days pass calmly. Help her to turn to you, to trust in you, and and be, be glad for her husband's precision. <laughs> um, let your peace be with us in all that we do through the rest of this Advent. We offer these prayers, Christ our Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, very quickly, um, I want to move along um, to get through the readings. I'd like to try to get through the incontinence section. It's the first third, and and hopefully by the end of our time today, the, the division will become clear, and you'll understand the section that we've gone through. One of the things I'd ask, just looking ahead in your reading, because I know you're all going to be reading over Christmas, um, when you're reading through the Inferno, pay attention to the guardians. And I've asked you to... Um, be aware of the contrapassos and particularly the words of the people because they give away the sin. Everything about every level gives away the sin. Dante's extraordinary in that way. Also keep in mind the guardians of each one of the levels because each one of the guardians is an image of that disorder, that sin in our souls. Once again, it's like the contrapassos. The contrapassos are a visible image of a disorder, a sin, the, the, na- the very nature of it. So are the guardians. In fact, the guardians personify it because they give you an image of a person. Um, but it's grotesque. Every one of them is monstrous. Each one of those images um, it is a... Is a, um, a shows the action of the sin itself. Um, and next time when we meet, I want to go through the descent um, briefly, but because there's, a, there's something to see about what happens to the will, the human will and the human intellect in that descent into hell. So it's easy to overlook those things, but e- everything tells. So don't, don't let your preoccupation with c- characters keep you from being aware of the whole of what's going on at every level. Um, including the guardians, um, because every one of them shows the real nature of sin, how, how horrible it is. Um, gives us all the more reason, I think, for, <laughs> for going to confession um, when we look at this stuff. So keep, that, keep, keep those things in your mind as you read, okay? Quick review. <coughs> Last week... Um, I just gave a brief summary of the differences between the Catholic and Protestant sensibilities. In, in lots of ways, they overlap. They overlap. And I, um, I hope I was clear in, um, in when I said that I've tried to do everything I could to avoid making judgments. I, it's not the place here to do that. What I was trying to do is objectively set out differences so that we could see how real they are um, and give the reasons behind them. Um, my own personal belief is that being a Catholic doesn't guarantee heaven and being a Protestant doesn't guarantee 
removal or absence from heaven. There will be a lot of Protestants who believe in Christ who I believe will see him. Um, they dedicate their lives to him. And there will be Protestants, I mean Catholics who may not, who won't probably. Dante's hell is full of Catholics, so it's not a guarantee. Um, to, be fair, to be fair, there weren't any Protestants in that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but I, I'm saying that just to know that being a Catholic, professing Catholic, because Christ himself said, lots of people are going to say Christ, Christ, Christ. He says that himself, who will have nothing to do with him. He will have nothing to do with them at the end times. So lots of people will profess Christ and not be there with him. That's, that's Christ, that's not Dante. So there's a stark realism to what we've been dealing with. Just very quickly, one of the most important things it seems to me to take away from the work that we did on these differences between our faiths is that Catholicism by its very name, by its very name, means universal. Everyone. Everyone. What sets Catholicism apart is that it's not partial doesn't depend on baptism or a certain attitude towards baptism or, or a political affiliation or a ra racial affiliation or sexual affiliation. Catholicism, insofar as it um, embodies or represents Christ in the world, stands above all partial things. It is whole, complete in itself. So, um, some denominations can, ta can take baptism as the defining thing that sets them apart from everybody else. Catholicism can't do that because it's all there. So one of the things that Catholicism protects is the universality of our faith. I want to just say that again. One of the things that defines Catholicism is, is its universality. It protects the universality of our faith. The purity of spirit, I've used that phrase before, purity of spirit, I just want everybody to hear this deeply, purity of spirit can't be racial, cannot be national, it cannot be sexual. Christ asked us to love everybody. We can't narrow that down according to a national loyalty, Anglican, Episcopal can't be narrowed down to a race, Greek Orthodoxy. That's what I grew up under. Um, because every one of those things accommodates to the world. It becomes a filter that keeps something of Christ out. We have been asked to follow Christ in his purity. That means the love of Christ is above every other loyalty, national, racial, sexual. Men can't let their bonding with other men keep them from loving women. Women can't let their bonding with other women keep them from loving men, which so often happens. I mean, I'm assuming I'm speaking things about, that all of us know about. We are, la we are asked to stand with Christ, to let those attachments go so that we are completely with him, bring him to the world, particularly where those loyalties get in the, loyalties get in the way, because they do very often. So... What the, the, one of the marks that distinguishes Catholicism from all the other denominations is that it's not partial. It doesn't identify with a part, one thing. It is the whole, all of it. All, all of Christ. Sacramentally, morally, spiritually, all of it. 
Infallibility is an important issue because it's, it's the one way the church has of holding to the truth of the dogmas because they're so constantly in danger. We know that. We know that. Age, age to age, things will come up making claims about Christ that will undermine the church. Um, just a, as a brief side note, when, you know when we were watching the movie um, A Man for All Season, um, I think I've mentioned this before, um, when Moore arrives home and finds um, Roper with Meg, you remember it's probably six o'clock in the morning, and Moore's comment is, what you really need is a clock to this guy who's there to woo his daughter. And Meg says to him, he's here to propose marriage, and Moore's response is no, um, because you're a heretic. Um, I, I jumped at that word when I heard it because it, in one sense it's an unusual, we don't, we don't hear that word in our world. And I thought about that a lot it, it, and I was glad to watch the movie again just to hear that word, I mean among other reasons. We live in a world in which people believe that the most important thing that we can do is get along with each other and anybody who holds a belief that makes that hard is looked at as bigoted, prejudiced. So the fact that Catholicism believes in such a thing as heresy, that, that there are some things that you can do that will set you apart from Christ, automatically puts a Catholic, makes a Catholic suspect in our world. So long as we get along with everybody, we're okay, which, mean, which means in, in what we call the progressive modern democracy, so long as we get along, we'll be fine. But if anybody says there's something higher than a democracy, and it's a cause for using a word like heresy, people are going to tag that person. They're not going to like him. Um, so, um, and one of the reasons it's important here, because we'll end there today, tonight, I hope we get there. If, when we get to the end of the incontinence section of hell, we come to the circle of heresy. That boundary defines hell, the, the lower hell from upper hell. Dante has no qualms about using it. I mean, he doesn't go into it, but it's there. We can't ignore it. So one of the things we've got to look at today is this notion of heresy and how it plays out in our lives. And I'm saying that with um, some sense of how difficult it is because we live in this world that doesn't want to acknowledge something like that. In fact, the modern world thinks the most important thing in the world is that we all get along. Anybody who thinks differently is a heretic. They're bigoted, prejudices, you know, they don't, they don't use that word, but that's basically it. I mean, they will become violent. They will think we belong to a superstitious age. Uh, so anybody holding Christian beliefs is suspect in our world uh, because Christ, the very nature of Christian, Christianity and Islam, Judaism, is their dogmatic. Those three main world religions rest on certain dogmas. Um, so, I mean, the great challenge for America is can, can we, can we, is it possible for people of different religious beliefs to come together in peace? And that's one of the great struggles. Shakespeare saw it. Those, I, part of me wants to go back and do Merchant of Venice and um, Othello again with this group for the newcomers because Shakespeare was aware of this, so was Dante. Um, we bury the problem. We, we, we don't deal with it um, because 
it's outside our ethos. It's not what we do in, in our world. So I just, I want to throw that out. I, 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 we'll come back to it at the end of our time today because Dante is going to deal with it explicitly. Finally, the notion of prophecy. Um, we talk, I talked a little bit about the prophetic quality of Dante and the other works that we've read. And remember, the, the, the definition that I'm offering is that these poets are greater than other poets because they show us things that so often we don't want to see, that are difficult to see. Um, I want to underscore that today because that goes right to the heart of Dante's commedia, what he's doing. You know by now, if you didn't before, that um, Dante tries to climb this mountain. He has no intention of going into the next life. None. He wants nothing to do with it. Virgil comes along, a pagan, Virgil comes along and says, you can't get up that mountain until you go down. To go down means he has to go into the underworld. He has to go into the underworld. Um, and there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. One is, um, some of you aren't going to appreciate it as much as you could. Others who have been here um, when we did the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid will, will know. Um, in the Odyssey, Odysseus cannot, cannot get home, cannot get home without going to the underworld. In all the adventures he has, it's one of the central ones. Uh, Homer is making it clear. Uh, Odysseus has been away for almost 20 years from his wife. Penelope, as the wife, has been without a husband for almost 20 years. Both of them are struggling to be faithful. The suitors, you don't want to marry her. I mean, that's the great danger that they can sweep her up. And she's, she's about ready to give up because she's been waiting 20 years and she has no indication that she'll see her, her husband again. So, and while Odysseus is at sea, he's, he's, he's experiencing metaphysical levels of reality that are going to help him understand things other men don't know. So when we set the marriages against each other, Menelaus and, and um, Nestor's, because of those are the two major marriages, against Odysseus, Odysseus is learning something that the other men don't. He's learning something about women. One of the things that he learns in hell, women are not going to be at ease hearing this, but one of the things he learns about women in hell is that they're treacherous. When he meets Agamemnon, he learns. He learns. Oh, wait, we've already talked about the treacheries of men, so let's keep this. Let's keep this equal here, or some balance. Agamemnon describes what happened when he comes home, and he learns from all the wives. They're not telling on their husbands. They're not pointing fingers. But what becomes clear when he talks to the wives is none of them remember their husbands. They remember their houses, their children, their possessions. They've all forgotten their husbands. Athena will say to Odysseus when he gets home, um, God, what were his words? She cautions him about the possessiveness of women. I can't remember her words, but one of the critiques running through the Odyssey is that there, there's a critique of both male brutality, the seniors, and, but also something treacherous in women. And he's got to learn to deal with that if he's going to come home. So he cannot, he cannot come home to be re reunited with his wife to, to realize what the 
what can happen in a marriage involving a, a man and a woman without having undergone those things. Because if he doesn't, he won't bring as much of himself to the marriage, and neither will she. So it's one of the truths of the Odyssey that man can't come home, he can't realize his end, to come home, his end, with his wife, without having learned things about himself and women that most men don't. So, and the other thing I think, he, you know, all men are going to die. If we don't learn to make a place for death, we really don't know how to live life fully. That's just one of the truths of the Odyssey. So here, and Aeneas, same thing. Aeneas cannot get home. He cannot get to Rome without going to the underworld. It's in the underworld in Aeneas's, in, the, in Virgil's Aeneid, it's in the underworld that Aeneas receives his calling from his father, and he's told what to do when he gets to Italy, because he's going to have nothing but battles. He's just going to be fighting. Both men have to go to the underworld. as a, They have to deal with death. They have to learn something from death before they can carry out this divine mission. Okay. What is Dante doing? He did not set up that mountain expecting that he'd have to go into the underworld. Virgil comes along and says, you can't go up there till you go down. Down for him means going to the outside of time, to, to end times, to final ends. Why? Because it's only when we look at final ends that we really see the nature of what we're doing here. Right? Very often we don't see sin very clearly. You can't mistake it in Dante's work because you're seeing the final form that it takes. So the actions that we can blur, that we can use our mind to sort of cover up or minimize, can't do that with Dante. What, he, what he's showing us is prophetic in the sense He's showing it what's going to happen if we keep doing these things. This is, what, this is what this is. This is what this is. This is what this is. It's no different than going to a doctor and a doctor saying, you got cancer. You, you've got to do this to hold on. Or, or better yet, an alcoholic. If you keep doing this, this is what, this is what it's going to do to you. So at every one of the levels, Dante's showing us the final effect, what a, the, the form that sin will take in the end times, so we can see it as it is. And there's no holding back. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of hell. So there's a prophetic quality to what he's doing, and we'll discover as we move along that like Aeneas, not less so with Odysseus, but like Aeneas, Aeneas learns that he has a calling. Dante learns that he has a calling. He has to bring the truth back to people because if he doesn't, there's a danger for all of us that we really won't understand ourselves. We will keep getting away with things. Um, so hell is that condition of separation from God. It's showing us the final effect of sins. What happens if we don't change what, how does he call it, level the mountains? <clears throat> Fill up the valleys. I mean, it was the reading this weekend from Isaiah. Hmm? I said I had that reading too. Yeah. So um, there's this prophetic element. We can read it as an epic. We did the early the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It's an epic. But there's a much graver um, prophetic quality to it because this comes in a Christian world 
where Christ has come to uncover all of that anyway. He wasn't there in a pagan world. He is in our world. So, Okay. Um, last thing, um, we'll get to it in the historical. Just looking ahead, remember I said, interestingly, Dante's born at 1265, I think, 1265. I think 1264 was the date of the first, burger, the first commercial republic in the West. Um, I'll, I'll do the historical re review in just a second. Um, remember that um, when the, the time that Dante um, locates the action of the Divine Comedy is roughly 1300. Um, he, he's, we'll learn in the, in, the, in the narrative, in the story, about events that are going to take place because some of the people can see in the future um, even if they can't see the present, we're, we're going to go into that directly here. But we're located in time. It's about 1300. Um, events are going to take place between, say, 30 years before that and 8 or 10 years after that. The Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, remember when the papacy was relocated from Rome to France, Avignon, with all the corrupts in the church? The Babylonian captivity took place from 1305-1378. When was Wycliffe responding to the corruption of the church? Do you remember? I would have given this in a quiz. Yeah, it was. He was born about 1320 and he died 16 or 13, 1380, 1384. So he would have been doing his major writing just in that period of the Babylonian captivity. So just think about how what's going on with Dante's historical background dovetails with the historical background leading to the Reformation. It's just another way of saying the corruptions of the church okay, have always been there. The church is always fighting to hold its balance. And all of the reformers were, were so horrified by the corruptions that it led them to want to radically, in some cases, leave the church radically reform it. And you know that the major reforms, the major reforms in the Middle Ages took place in Dante's time. The Franciscan order emerged then and so did the Dominicans. So it's not an accident. The major reforms were coming out because the church had reached a point of crisis in Dante's time. I'll, we'll go into this in just a minute. It continued in the Milton's and we saw what happened with the what the Reformation did to the church. You know, going forward. I mean, that's where we began. So, but that's, just, a, but that's a whole 200 years difference. I didn't realize how early it was, right? And that's the beginning of the Renaissance. Anyway. Say again, Valerie. Say I didn't realize that Wycliffe was so early until he. Yeah, was, right. Because that's 200. I mean, right. I equate the Reformation right. to 1600, yes. not 1300. Yeah. No, I think all of us do. I do too. But remember. I'm always amazed. I don't hold this in my mind for the exact same reason, but when I read him, I'm stunned. I said this before. I don't find anything in Luther that already doesn't have his source in Wycliffe, that he's almost taking verbatim the, the critiques then, and it's 200 years later. That's why Wycliffe is called the Morning Star of the Reformation. So he's, he was kind of like forgotten. He's one of the like forgotten, some, as you say, people pick up different things and then they became a more, more well-known. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is the printing press. That radically changes things because, because now um, 
reform arguments are made available to a, a wider audience. And, and as I said, when we did our work on the reformation, you got all these men coming out of universities, thinking independently, encouraged to think, feeding each other. So it's, it's just a different, it's, it's a different set of circumstances. And, and the effects of what they do are more widespread. Um, and I also think, I also think truly, maybe more than we recognize that the new political regimes emerging at Dante's time, they take a century. Dante's, the, the Florence of Dante's time is the first commercial republic. Sha I've said this to you all. Shakespeare is, <laughs> Shakespeare is amazing. He's just, an, Shakespeare's aware of all this. The, re the, Renaissance, the, ref the, the Renaissance doesn't get from Italy to England for another 200 years. Shakespeare's aware of it. Shakespeare writes plays on Italy and Rome, and he, it's clear that he sees the implications of these things. Um, but that's 200 years later. And one of the reasons it's important, because the, the feudal order, the Holy Roman Empire, is in decline, and the, and the national states are slowly emerging. And out of them come Florence and these commercial republics, these new kind of regimes in the West that lead to the Renaissance and America, the modern world. So there are lots of changes that take place after Wycliffe that, that I think help explain why we don't mark the beginnings of the Reformation earlier. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying. Okay, um, this week. Let me, any, any thoughts or... Here, I forgot. We didn't do a, we didn't do a, uh, a lyric. Before we turn to this week, Suzanne and I have been reading two lyrics just as a part of Advent, each or Psalms. As a part of Advent, we've been reading two psalms each night. Um, actually, it's an amazing... I've gone through the psalms myself before, but going through them, I think, and, and maybe even more especially because of this work that we're doing together here, but nightly doing it, they're, they're just reinforcing themselves. I want to read a psalm just for you to have... This is our lyric for the night, okay? But I want to make a comment on it. I'm just picking these arbitrarily. These are 15 and 16. You don't, you don't have to look, just if you could just listen. And, and I, but I want to make a comment. Um, 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tent? Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his friend? nor take up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. 16. 
um, to David again, of David. Preserve me, O God, for in thee I take refuge. I say to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. I have no good apart from thee. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their libations of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Thou holdest my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also dwells secure. For thou dost not give me up to shale, or let thy godly one see the pit. Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence there is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. A couple of things, just quickly. Fifteen, sixteen. But they have in parentheses 14, 15, so it, I, I don't know the reason for that, but here. Very quickly, um, who does not put out his money at interest does not take a bribe against the enemy. He who does these things shall never be moved. Preserve me, O Lord, for in thee I take refuge. I say, that my Lord, I have no good apart from thee. Um, he talks about the blessings and, um, and um, his hope that the Lord will protect him from enemies. Now, two, two quick things. One is, we know David committed murder and adultery. Yes. And, and in, the Psalms, in the Psalms, immediately coming up, after the ones that I just read, the Psalms are going to be delivered when he's struggling with um, Absalom. Because Absalom's trying to kill him. So, and, and we have from, from the Bible that the, the God was so displeased with him that we knew that problems were going to follow, that David was going to have to deal with him. So put it in that context. He killed a man. Major commandment. Thou shalt not commit murder. He committed adultery. We call it mortal sin. He, he, he committed the two worst mortal that I can, except for denying God. I mean, he didn't do that. He committed, except for that, he committed the two greatest mortal sins. He killed a man, committed adultery. He loved God. And it's really clear God loved him. I just want to put that out. But here's the reason, here's the reason I want to read this is a psalm tonight. Uh, who swears to his own hurt, does not change, who does not put out it. He is not going, well, if I could have more furniture, or if my bills weren't so tight this month, or if I only had security, if I, if I could meet my insurance, I will be safe. There is nothing that he says that isn't in relation to God. And I'm saying this because I can't read these without being made aware of how materialistic we've become. We put our whole world in terms of, if I don't get my next paycheck, if I don't have the insurance that I expect, I won't be able to make my bills, oh, if I could only have this, I'd be closer to the Joneses, or if my son has this house and I don't, you know, it doesn't stop. There's nothing in any of these Psalms, not any problem, not a problem, that David doesn't talk about in terms of God. I mean, it, God is so immediately present to everything he does. So whatever the problems are, there's not a materialistic vision that separates that I've got to have all of this, you know. Everything that's going on, problems, suffering, blessings, 
they're, they're all amplified. They, they produce greater sorrows in him, greater joy. Because God is related in every one of them. How many of us live our lives like that today with money and our dependence on careers and, you know. Anyway, I just wanted to read those psalms as, as the lyric. Um, but wasn't his, wasn't his murder related to the adultery? Yeah. Yeah, he, he wanted to... Yeah, he, he wanted to get Hisiah or Hariah, whatever his name was, out of the way. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right, yeah. Here, listen to this. I, I've said this before, but I, I don't know if I said it with this group. But you know, I, <laughs> If you go back and read that, it's so clear. The Bible doesn't go into concrete details. It's slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband, got her husband out of the way so he could... Um, but what's interesting about it, the Bible says... He, he took, he, what did he do? He had the husband spend the night one night to cover himself so that if she got pregnant, he couldn't be accused. He has him sleep there, and then he puts him in the front line. Now just stop for a second. How cunning is that? And we don't, we don't get a mention of it. I mean, David is God's chosen. He loves him. He's, um, he's the one who had him chosen, and, um, and the line of Christ runs through him. It goes back to him, King David. And so much of what Christ does, he does consciously in relationship to David. If When I look at those passages, one of the things that strikes me is that there's nothing said about it. It's just the husband, he has the husband sleep there to cover his tracks. Then he puts him in the front line to get killed. You cannot be more manipulative. You cannot be more cunning. And all of that's glossed over. I mean, that doesn't bother me. It's just, to me, it's a reminder of how, how everything in the, in the Old Testament world was seen in re- immediate relation to God and how different that is for us. We, we can't live a day without grieving over um, my knees are going. And do I have to see the doctor next week whom I don't want to see? Got to have a colonoscopy, colonoscopy. You know, I mean, we just... Um, so nightly, I'm reading this and thinking, "Holy cow! It just—it's been impossible for me to read these the last week and and not feel the difference between our worlds." Anyway, I offered those as lyrics tonight. Okay, very very quickly. Um, I just want to cover a couple of things in the historical overview, um, and I, I would like to um, ask a question here. You've got these short handouts that I've given you on the historic, the thumbnail, you know, the brief sketch and a little bit longer one. I've got a longer one yet. No, 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 don't, I'm not going to, uh, but when I read it, when I read it, I, it, I'm just aware of how much is left out of the s- smaller handouts that I've given you. If anybody would like the longer one, it's, it's, that's just 14 pages, not... If anybody would like the longer, let me know and I'll run it off because I'm I'm just astonished at what's going on in the his, the history you know behind all of this. So if if you want if you want that longer copy, let me know and we'll, I'll run it off and you can have it next time we meet. Okay. In the brief thumbnail sketch, I, I've divided the the background leading up to Dante into three phases. The first phase, if you have that copy, you know that I called the imperial papacy. 
It, it's the early stages of the church, um, and the important events are, are um, the, the northern tribes, the Germanic tribes coming down and um, destroying, virtually destroying Rome, and the fact that the man that comes out to, to make um, peace with these northern barbarians is the pope, not the emperor. And that fact, combined with what happened with Constantine when he, when he made Christianity official, um, immediately involves the pope in political affairs in a direct way. You can almost say that he, he becomes the um, de jour. No, no, de, de facto. Um, he steps forward. It's not by right. It's something that has to happen. Um, if you look at that, that handout, you see all those quotes at the top of the page that are biblical quotes making clear the different kinds of a power, different kinds of authority between the papacy and the emperor, between God and Caesar. Because the soul is higher, it has a transcendent end, the papacy has always understood itself to have a greater authority. But what happens when the pope goes out to negotiate this treaty is he becomes embroiled in political affairs. And what happens after that time is that the papacy, um, the authority between the papacy and the emperor get confused, mixed. And there's a long period of, of um, horrible conflicts and corruptions that occur because of it. Okay. Um, Christmas Day 800, um, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne Emperor. Think about the implications of that because the fact that he crowns Charlemagne Emperor seems to ratify the fact that the papacy has a greater power um, than the emperor. The second period um, is called the Age of Decretals and when all these decrees were made, um, largely by popes, to get clear on the differences, the limits of each authority, the, the imperial and um, papal authority. It's called the Age of Decretals because so many of them were reduced, and almost all, almost all of them came from popes who had become lawyers, because they knew if they were going to be able to sort these problems out between the church and state, they'd have to have a clear grasp of law. So the church is beginning internally to reform, even if it doesn't see itself as doing that right at this time. The third phase is that phase in which Aristotle is recovered from the um, Islamic world. Um, if you know anything about that period, you know that the, the Middle Ages are virtually platonic, that Aristotle disappears, the, the Eastern world has them, the Islamic world has them. But a number of Arab and Islamic and Jewish thinkers used Aristotle to make their arguments. It, it produced what they called the two truths. They learned that Aristotle see things that weren't compatible with their own faith in Allah. So they came up with this philosophy of the two truths, as if two truths could contradict each other. Well, that thinking entered the West, and um, when it does enter the West, it radically answers problems that are inherent in a platonic way of seeing things. And um, it, it leads eventually to um, Albert and St. Thomas. And St. Thomas is the one who uses Aristotle to um, 
to really lay the basis of the modern church and, and prepare the way for science. Because under a Platonic regime, Plato didn't like material causes, he didn't like the body. But that carries through over into the Protestant world. He doesn't like the body. Aristotle sees the body as essential. We covered this indirectly a little bit. Um, when when St. Thomas um, learns from Albert what he did about, Saint, um, about Aristotle, he brings that work to the West and the universities, and there's a quarrel between him and Bonaventure, who's a Platonist. The early response to St. Thomas was that he was heretical because he was presenting something that seemed so to threaten the authority of the church. It only it takes a while for him to become established, but one of the effects of that is Dante and the emergence of these new communes. The reason for that is this. Plato believed that the city's principal function in the world was punitive, that there was a depravity to man, and laws were necessary to punish them. That's Platonic. Aristotle said no, that um, reason for Aristotle is not depraved, the body's not depraved. Reason is intrinsically good, and laws are meant to help people better themselves. So there's an intrinsic good in man. Now, that radically changes the relationship between the human community and God, because if, if reason is intrinsically good and man is intrinsically good, then he can, he can create a commune that's independent of the emperor, and the Pope. That is a major influence in, in these new regimes, the, the beginning of the Renaissance in 1400 in Italy, that will eventually work its way west, um, yeah, is that, yeah, um, towards England. Um, but two things to, 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 that I want to just underscore here. Um, Two lines. One was called the Hoffenstaten line, and the other one was the Guelph. Two lines that trace their dynastic um, beginnings back to Germany and um, dynastic families laid claim on the um, on the imperial throne, um, and they went to war um, when Frederick, one of the lines in in those Germanic. Um, dynasties, um, when he, he came into the picture, um, he, he wanted to take control of Rome, knowing that if he did, he would be able to unify Europe and solidify his power. Um, he went to war with the northern tribes of Italy, the Lombards, and um, the, the, the Welfs went to war with him. The, the Lombards took their ties back to the Welfs. So, a battle that began between these two dynastic, these Germanic families, the Hoffenstatens and the Welsh, went to Italy, except there it got changed and the names became the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. The Ghibellines um, identify themselves with imperial power. The Guelphs identify themselves with papal authority. And they go to war. In, in almost all the Italian cities, those, those two groups are constantly at battle and actually killing each other because the loyalties are that great. Um, Florent, Florence becomes um, largely Guelph, goes to war with the Ghibellines and um, exiles them, chases them out. And we know, from, we know from history, we also know from the Commedia, 
that the Ghibellines come back and they take possession of the town and chase the Guelphs out. The Guelphs come back again and defeat them. I mean, it's just an ongoing battle. Over time, when the Guelphs get control of Florence, the Guelphs themselves begin to divide down into what's called the black and whites. The blacks are those Guelphs who continue to identify with the papacy, even though they're Guelphs, and the whites identify themselves with freedom. Dante is one of those because there's, there's a large group of these Florentines who believe so strongly in freedom that communes should exist independently of imperial authority or papal authority. And that's why those regimes are so important and why they mark the beginnings of the Renaissance because a whole new way of life comes out of them. A whole new spirit of freedom, of inventiveness, of resourcefulness, um, risking. Now, now individuals are encouraged to take risk to improve their lives. Out of that comes all these um, academies, these learning academies that spring up. The art, the music, new political forms, these new kinds of government that are breaking from the feudal order and breaking from the, from the emperor and the pope. So that's the historical context um, involving the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, okay? Um, it's intense. Um, it means enough to people that they're actually killing each other. And they're actually killing members of their own family because families get divided um, over these things. But I wanted to, I just wanted to read this brief. Um, these are from notes because it gives some sense of what's going on at Dante's time and how much this looks forward to Milton's time and actually describes what's going on in Milton even though this is almost 300 years earlier. Always beneath the surface of these conflicts lay the fundamental question of authority. What was the proper relationship between church and state? What were their separate distinct powers, their ends? The problem came to a head over a question having to do with the nature of royal authority. Feudal kings were anointed with elaborate religious ceremonies, receiving consecrations similar to those of bishops. Like bishops, they were seen as vicars or ministers of God. These are kings. It was essential for maintaining order that the kings control their estates. The nobles and kings held their lands and jurisdiction by hereditary right, and as a result, they could do no wrong. Accordingly, the custom throughout Europe was for king to choose bishops to invest them with the ring and pastoral staff symbolizing pastoral office. Now think about the importance of this. The major reforms are going to come out of this condition because if that's true, kings have authority over the bishops. They can command them what to do. To the extent that bishops depend on kings for lands, for marriages, for wealth, how answerable will they be to the pope, to their calling? So out of this came this outrage on the part of the church. They wanted to reform it. Um, one, one particular pair of uh, um, cardinals named Damien and Humphrey. The two men were by temp temperament very different. The debate that developed between them uncovered issues that had implications as serious as property rights, apostolic succession, future relations between Greek and Roman churches. Damien argued that although a seminist was a bad bishop, he was nevertheless still a bishop. Humbert, however, maintained that the sin of simony was so heinous that a bishop who paid to obtain his office 
was ipso facto not a true bishop. Remember, Luther's, one of Luther's great complaints, selling indulgences, you can't sell indulgences. Um, how, how, can pre, how can priests or bishops sell properties? Buy them and then sell them. Um, his office was ipso facto not a true bishop. His consecration was invalid, as were those of the priests he ordained. The argument bore directly on relations between kings and bishops because when a king chose a bishop, the bishop took on a dual function. He became a prelate to the church and a vassal of the king at the same time. Now imagine the corruptions that encouraged selling properties, bishops giving their allegiance to the king. Just for a moment, go back to Tom, Tom the man for all seasons. I mean, it's a stunning picture. Remember when, when the, the court of bishops was convened to see what their answer was to the king? You had an entire congregation of bishops caving in because they were answerable to the king. So, so what we picked up with Thomas More in, what, 16... I can't remember the dates. When, um, or sorry, for, yeah, right, sorry. What is it, 1540? I can't remember, somewhere in there. This is, this is the 13th century, the middle of 1250, somewhere in here. So we're two, 250 years early, earlier than that. So everything that we picked up concerning Milton is already going on now with Dante. Same kinds of problems, same struggle between church and state. One of the great struggles of the church, I'm going to maintain this, but, and it, it, it focuses around what, what happens with Florence in the Middle Ages, is one of the great accomplishments of the Middle Ages church was to separate itself out from royal imperial authority. The investiture conflict centered on that problem. Who's to invest these people? Who do they owe their, um, their authority to? And out of it also came the, the College of Cardinals, the bishops, because up until that time, pope or kings could choose popes. So the reforms that went on here were to, was to separate that power out, to give the, the church the authority to elect its own and to have jurisdiction over it. In Dante's time, Philip, the king of France, charged a bishop with heresy and was going to prosecute him. The Pope said, absolutely not. It's not your place. A big battle. What comes out of that? Philip um, um, defeats the papal forces and is partly responsible for the move from Rome to um, France. So, um, so I'm, ju I'm just putting this out, not only so that you understand what, Don what the background that Dante's dealing with, but to see again <laughs> the very... Issues that we were looking at when we dealt with Milton are already here. The great struggle of the church through the Middle Ages was to get clear on the limits of its authority, what it could and couldn't do. And, and um, you can hear Pope John, John Paul, what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, saying, making it, making it clear, he said to the priests, stay out of politics. He never said you couldn't speak about it, but he was drawing a line really clear the, the, um, the, the church can speak to these things. It cannot meddle in them with respect to power. Um, there are two distinct powers there. What emerges in the modern world? America and the Bill of Rights. 
concerning the relationship between church and state. So we're going back to a time when all of this was beginning to crystallize and Dante's writing at this time and he's writing at a time when the new commercial regime comes into existence and he's laying it bare. So on, on numerous levels, Dante's really prophetic. He's speaking to us about our own political regime, the world we inhabit, struggles we still face. Okay. Okay. Gita, do you have a question? No. Richard, you, everybody? I got it. That kind of sounds like China today, as far as the same issues that the church is dealing with. Where China wants to appoint the bishops. Yep. Versus the papacy. Yep. China has always done that for right. 3,000 years. Yeah. They've controlled everything. There's, I mean, the interesting. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a totalitarian. One of the interesting things too, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't know the history of China, but my sense of Eastern regimes, China among them, and Japan, is that they all have this priestly, dynastic class behind them, um, and but it doesn't have a god. I mean, the emperor can be a god, but the, yeah. But th this priestly class still has that kind of power over a people where, where we acknowledge a separation in those powers, a distinction between those powers. Because if you confuse them, and, and the confusion could bo go both ways, you, you become a theocracy. My argument would be in the modern progressive democracy in which we live, the democracy can become totalitarian because it wants to control all things, including your religious belief. If you happen to believe in heresy, you're a bigot. I mean, there you know there's subtle ways of getting rid of you. So, those totalitarian tendencies have been with us always. One of the things that marks the West off has always been we so value our liberty that, that the great accomplishments we've made in the West have been in the name of fighting for that liberty. Magna Carta, Civil War, Lincoln's addresses, you know. Um, Churchill in, in England in the Second World War against Hitler. I mean, um, okay, here. Um, let's get to Dante. Um, Dante's time frame. You've all got that sheet. You know that, that the Dante's journey takes place in Easter tide from Monday, Thursday through Thursday of the next week. And that when Dante comes out on the shores of Purgatory, it's Easter Sunday. So what we're experiencing is the conversion of a soul. Moving through the Easter season, facing the darkness in the soul. Each one of us, when we go into Easter, we go through a long period of Lent. We're asked to look at the worst things in our characters to do a serious penance in preparation for that renewal of life that comes with Christ's resurrection. Um, I think it was Karen, I'm not sure, asked last week, how do we know? Um, there are keys in the, in the text. There's, I think it's, it's, it's in the Inferno, Canto 20, at the end of it, a specific reference is given to actual time. But we also know because of the numerous prophecies in the work. Because the prophecies 
um, give exact dates of things that actually took place in Florence with the exiles and expulsions. And so we can date the, the actual days of Dante's journey. Dante's method, I mentioned it before, but I want to take a second here. Um, and we're going to, when I get to the readings, we're going to, we're going to, I want to open them up in, with this method in, um, behind us. Dante used consciously what he called an allegorical, or allegorical method. According to Dante, and by the way, he gets this from St. Thomas. If you read the opening sections of St. Thomas's Summa, he actually talks about language and um, what we do with language, and he speaks specifically to this allegorical method. So this is St. Thomas. St. Thomas got it from Plato and medieval thinkers um, early in the history of the church. According to the allegorical way of reading the world, there are two levels of meaning in everything that takes place in life, a literal and an allegorical. Okay? So that right now, the, the literal meaning of what we're doing is that we're all engaged in reading Dante. That's what we're doing together. We're, we're reading this man's work. But at an allegorical level, there are three levels. One is the allegorical level itself. The other is what's called a tropological. And the third is called an um, analogical. Or Anagogical. Okay. Now I want to take a second with this to make this clear, because it's the way we should it's the way we should read Dante, and I believe it's the way we should always read life, even though we people don't understand this anymore. <clears throat> According to St. Thomas and Dante, every single event in life, no matter what's going on, has a little meaning. But behind us is this larger, more complex allegorical meaning. And the allegorical meaning itself consists of three different levels. The allegorical level itself has to do with a passage from an old to the new. Old to the new. The tropological has to do with the moral sense of what's going on. Ought. What we ought to do. And the anagogical has to do with final ends. Salvation. Salvation. And let me try to make this clear. So, um, I think St. Thomas's example. Um, when the Jews left Egypt, literally, historically, they were leaving Egypt. At an allegorical level, what was being expressed was they were leaving an old way of life behind and passing into a new way of life. When we undergo a conversion, we're leaving an old way of life behind, passing into a new. When we do penance, we're trying to get rid of an old way in a, each one of us and enter into something new. So at one level of the allegorical, we're, we're dealing with um, a change that's taking place. Okay? The tropological level has to do with moral the moral sense of what's going on. When we're doing something, um, ought we do it or not? 
It's just a knot. It's a moral impaired, whether it's there, whether we should be doing it or not. And then a logical level is what we're doing taking us closer to heaven or hell, the, the two final ends. So if we were to look at our class today, I mean, if this is what we're doing, we're all engaged in reading Dante. We're learning about our faith. That's what we're doing. At an at a, at a allegorical level, the question we should all be facing is, are we leaving an old way of living behind? Am I doing that in what I'm doing? Are you doing it? And entering a new way, leaving our sins. I mean, this is Advent. It's becoming a new person. Um, are we doing what we ought to be doing or not? That's the moral level, the tropological. And the anagogical is, um, is what we're doing taking us closer to Christ? Are we closing the distance between him and us by what we're doing? Are we becoming better Christians? Um, what's at stake here, think about this for a second, what's at stake here is a horizontal way of reading by analogy. And I say this um, self-consciously, I mean, um, because I believe that so often the way we read things flattens things out. I mean, we just give things one a literal meaning. Do, are we learning to read by analogy to see that there are multiple levels of reality going on in everything we do at every moment of our lives? Um, if, if all of this is a little bit abstract, think about the wind hover. You know, Hopkins' description of that bird. Hopkins sees a bird. Literal. That's the literal level. And, and I want to reinforce this. Could all these other levels exist without the literal? I mean, I'm going back to Dante and Milton now. If, if you skip, if you circumvent, if you go around the literal level, you, there's no way to enter into these. Because they all depend on the literal level. It all, they all depend on the body. Think about Hopkins' wind hover. You've got this bird. Is he just showing a bird? Buckling? In that moment, he's showing that bird is related directly to Christ on the cross. Take supernatural love, the, the young four-year-old girl who pricks herself. You remember? On a literal level, on a literal level, she just pricks herself. There's nothing going on. Clearly what that poet shows us, if you read the language, that's not all that's going on. What's happening in that moment is that girl is participating in the crucifixion. I've been saying, you know, from the beginning that poets, poets teach us to see that there's a transcendent meaning in, involved in everything we do, whether we see it or not. I mean, we started this work together a couple of years ago with that, can we find Christ where ordinarily, can we see Christ, can we find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him? Can we find him there? Where is he? So Dante's using this allegorical method. Everything that happens in this book has multiple meanings, that, and he's conscious of them. So as we read, it's important to ask, what are the deeper levels of meaning here? When, when um, Dante and Virgil come to the gates of Dice, we're going to come to it in a minute. When they come there, what does that mean? Just coming to this gate? Or are there other levels of meaning? When we look at our lives and reflect on them, is there more going on than we see? How important is meditation or contemplation? And, thinking about these things. 
<clears throat> so, when we read Dante, it's important to keep this method in mind. Um, hell, what is hell? Very, very briefly. You got to explain hell very briefly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do this, do this very briefly. In your chapter in the Bible that you invested in your life, that you gave into life, it's kind of like a perpetual, in, um, I would say not enjoyment, but a perpetual participation in the vice that you submitted to in life in those love. Yeah. That took your, that became your idol in life, to use the word loosely as idol. If you if you say you were just um, you just couldn't get over money and greed, mm -hmm. and it was always the thing that kind of tilted you in your decision making, and the thing you couldn't purge yourself from, and it led you to sin away from Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. Then you're in, in in hell. That's what's going to be. It's right. Not, you get to eat your right. Food. That's what you see in in the in the level of avarice too. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. The term hell derives from the Anglo-Saxon halon. Halon. Um, or um, behelion, behelion, which means a hole, a hole, a dark place, a cavern, or to conceal. That's what hell means. I like that word, but I like this even better. It also comes from the Greek Kalipting. From which we get what? Those of you who've been here for a while. Calypso. 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 Huh? Calypso. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when we were going to hear from you tonight. Um, I thought it was kryptonite. But <laughs> um, calyptane, the Greek, calyptane, to conceal. Those of you who did Homer with me, you know that. Of the nine and a half years that Odysseus is away, he, away from home after he leaves Troy, he's with Circe for a year. He's with Calypso for eight years. That's Homer's way of showing us the power that those two women have on him. What he's showing us is that there's this possessive power in the, in the feminine to control him. Um, Calypso means to conceal Remember, she doesn't want to give him up. He, Odysseus cannot get free from her without Hermes' help, without the help of the gods. There's no way he can. By the way, this is about a heroic code, a masculine heroic code, so we're not talking about something small here. He's, he's, he's on those two islands for nine years, Calypso's and Circe's. Eight of those with Calypso. Calypso's name, remember, it's a, hers, and, hers and Circe's Places are dark caverns. The, 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 what defines Circe is the sexual in man. It's the, the, the animal, 
sexual, basically. What defines Calypso is something spiritual. They're both known for their beauty. One is identified with the sexuality and the other with something spiritual. And the darker one is Calypso. Calypso means to conceal. And you know that the, the principal virtue for the ancient Greek hero was kleos, honor, which means to come out, to become whatever it is you're to be. So um, it's interesting that one of the words for hell is um, kalitain, which means conceal. That's where people hide. Hell is a place where we hide. It's where we get away with stuff, where we're concealed. And it's important to remember that um, the people in hell are not put there by God. It's a place they've chosen to be. The people in hell are there because they want what they've chosen. What they're doing in hell is exactly what they were doing in life. It's just exactly the way Patrick described it a minute ago. It's one of the most frightening things to me, personally, about hell. Um, that in hell you just continue doing what you, you know, what pushes you to do. Um, except you're caught in that one moment. That moment won't change eternally. Huh? You don't get what you want. You think you get what you want. Right. It's like the person who was gluttonous and could always be hungry. Right. Never going to be fulfilled. Right. I always thought right. that was a human, uh, human looking at hell. Where I was always taught that it was a true absence of God. It's what? An absence, an absence from God. Yeah, separation from God. Yeah, so I mean, if you're a glutton or whatever, I, I mean, who knows, right? But that's kind of a very human way of looking at what the sin, may, what hell may or may not be. I, well, it I, is. I always thought that was, if it's anything I can imagine, that's not it. It's going to be much, much worse. Well, it I mean, is. That's kind of how I was always taught. Right? Yeah. If you can imagine it, that ain't it. That's yeah. too easy. It's this, I mean, it. I'm, as I'm defining it, this is the way Dante presents it, but when you read it, you know it's that perfected, intensified. Um, it's some, it's, and remember, to the extent that you, any of the people in hell are there because they've chosen that sin over God, they've made it greater than God, will, which will make the punishments from it far, far greater than anything we know from their excesses here. But the important thing to underscore here is um, that it's chosen. Um, and, and because Dante shows this, I, I think we can say this of him, because he's, he's, um, he's fearless in, in rendering these conditions. I would say Dante and Shakespeare are the consummate poets of human responsibility. What they're showing is that we're responsible for our actions. This is what we've chosen. This is what we get. You'll, you'll see this more and more as we go along. In, we, in the modern world, we've, and it's just sad to think, we've been encouraged to think we're not responsible for ourselves. We're a product of all these forces, you know, these evolutionary forces. Or if you're Freudian, um, we're determined by all these things. They're determined. Freud doesn't believe in free will. Dante and Shakespeare belong to a Catholic world. It's why they produced the great works they did, because they show us fully who we are. They, they, they track out 
the consequences of our actions. They look at them closely so that we can see exactly who we are. We can't read Shakespeare and not learn that. We can't read Dante and not learn that. They're, they're the poets par excellence of human freedom. The, the cost of human freedom. We, we can't attain it without taking responsibility for ourselves. So he's unwavering of showing the consequences of what we do. So let me, I think, go there now. Um, um, let's, let's pick up where we were. Um, I want to just quickly go through, through some passages. Page 32. We left the level of um, the lustful with San Francisco and Paola. Are you going to go over the division system? I, I will in a minute, Doc. I want to get because we're going to get there at the end. Um, I'm going to list them out, but I want to right now. I want to get going because we don't have much time. And I want to um, remember we passed the um, limbo, the level of the virtuous pagans. The pagans are not being punished. They're in this dark, dim light. Um, and then we went to Francisca, and um, it's, it's there that Dante talks to this beautiful woman who blames God and whose language just turns in on itself. Those words that she speaks about love, turning in on love, sort of give her away. From there they go to the level of the gluttonous. Um, 32. Page 32 in the middle. Thick hail and dirty water mixed with snow come down in torrents through the murky air and the earth is stinking from its soaking rain. um, Cerberus, a ruthless and fantastic beat with all three throats howls out of his dog-like... It's almost as if one one throat's not enough for gluttony. (laughs) That you have to have three throats to satisfy. And you get the sense that not even three throats would do it. Except I think there's an implicit parody of the Trinity. But whatever whatever condition we see in hell has to be set against an ultimate source because it's a perversion of it. So it's not surprising that he has three. Um, Middle of the next page, 33. Each sinner there was stretched out on the ground except for one who quickly sat up straight. The moment that he saw us passing by, O you there being led through this inferno, he said, try to remember who I am. So he recognizes Dante. Dante can't recognize him. It's Chiaco. I said, the pain you suffer here perhaps disfigures you beyond all recognition. I can't remember seeing you before. Tell me who you are. Now this is crucial. This is the first mention we have of the city because it's one of the major themes of the Commedia, because the human city is a paradigm of our actions. It helps form us, and often in not good ways. We learn that from Plato's cave. It's been one of the constant images in all the work that we've done. Your own city, he said, so filled with envy, its cup already overflows the brim, once held me in the brighter life above. So what's the first critique, prophetic critique of the, of the modern commercial regime, the first tag describing it is envy. Why? Because people want to get ahead and other people don't want to lose out when somebody else has something they don't. So envy is one of the driving motives of the commercial regime. Look at what goes on politically. The sense of entitlement. I don't have it. I'm a victim. 
Who's going to provide it? The government. Who's going to play to it? Politicians. What's going to come out of that? Rage and hatred. I mean, the battling that goes back on. But envy is one of the motivating forces of the commercial world. If you're always trying to get ahead, somebody's going to be left behind. Go on over 34. You citizens gave me the name of Chiaco, and for my sin of gluttony I am damned. You can see, terrain that beats me weak. Chaco, I said, your grievous state weighs, <laughs> weighs down on me. It makes me want to weep. So what has Dante's response been for the first two levels of sin? Pity. Pity, weeping. He passes out at the end of the Francisco episode, and he wants to cry here. But tell me what will happen if you know to the citizens of that divided state. And are there any honest men among them? And tell me why it's so plagued with strife. Now, he, tell, he tells the story of what happened between the blacks and the whites. Dante's, remember, Dante's the white, he, he believes in freedom, and the blacks are still defining themselves in their attachment to the Pope. After much contention, they will come to bloodshed. The rusty party, the whites, will drive the other out by brutal means. Then it will come to pass, this side will fall within three sons and the other rise to power with the help of one now listening towards both sides. That's the Pope who seemed to be wavering but, but was anticipating something because he wanted, to, he wanted to look to one of them for help. Um, Dante goes on, um, on page 35, Dante wants to see Chiaco punished. This is really interesting, about line 87. But when you are once more in the sweet world, I beg you to remind our friends of me. I speak no more, no more I answer you. He twisted his straight gaze into a squint and stared a while at me, then bent his head, falling to join his other sightless peers. He'll wake no more until the day the angel's trumpet blows when the unfriendly judge shall come down here each soul shall find again his wretched tomb, assume his flesh, take his human shape, and bear his fate resound eternally. Virgil's point is, um, when the body's returned, the, the soul will achieve its perfection in the direction of joy and punishment. So when the body's returned, the punishments will increase, and the joys will increase in heaven. He says that the next page. 36, and he, remember your philosophy, the closer a thing comes to its perfection, more keen will be its pleasure or its pain. Now they come to the level of avarice and they watch these two groups crashing against each other. Um, Pluto, um, Plutus is, the, is the, the guardian of the, the level. He's, um, remember, the god of wealth who loved gold more than anything. Going over on 38, Dante says, my master, please explain to me, who are these people here? Were they all priests? <laughs> um, I'm going to let that go here. Were they all priests, these tonsured souls? I see there to our left, he said. In their first life, all you see here had such myopic minds that they could not judge with moderation when it came to spending. Because remember, priests are involved in simony. They're being encouraged to serve the king because they, if they do, they know they're going to be rewarded. Um, so the corruptions in terms of wealth are extraordinary. Dante's underlining that right here. Um, when it came to spending, their barking voices make this clear enough. When they arrive at the two points in the circle where opposing guilts divide the two, the, them into two, 
The ones who have bald spots on their heads were priests and popes and cardinals in whom avarice is most likely to prove. There it is, avarice. So we've seen envy. Now we see avarice. And I, master, in such a group as this, I should be able to recognize a few who dirtied themselves by such crimes as these. And he replied, yours is an empty hope. Their undistinguished life that made them foul now makes it harder to distinguish them. Why would it be appropriate as a part of the contrapasso here that these men can't be distinguished by their features? Dante can't recognize anybody. Why is that an appropriate contrapasso for... Remember, the, you've got two, two groups. One are the avaricious, the, the, the spendthrifts, the other are the niggardly, the, the miserly. Because wealth defined both of them, either wasting it or hoarding it. But it defined their lives. They either hoarded it, kept it themselves, or wasted it. So you get these two groups crashing constantly, like rock, rocks, and they're all faceless. Why? Is that appropriate? On 40, and I intend on looking as we pass on many people. This is the next we'll look at the, but I think, I think it's because in a commercial regime, this is my guess at the allegorical meaning here. Does it become pawns? Is it because the people don't matter, only the money, only the other? Yeah, yeah. The sellouts, sort of. Yes. To their own identity, to their own integrity. Except in this sense. When people are encouraged to get ahead and step on other people, I mean, you don't care who you, I mean, that's the language of our world. Other people become objects. They're not people, they're things. You turn people into things. You, you take away their identity. So the natural thing is, I mean, you, we hear that all, you know, if, I mean, one of the things that happens when, um, when we harm another person, um, to make that other person a victim of some wrong, we take away something of ourselves in doing that. So I think what Dante's showing us is that in a commercial regime, when people are so preoccupied with money that they use other people as objects, that they themselves lose their own identity. They, be, they become things themselves. So at every level, he's showing us the effect, the ult, what the ultimate effect will be of our actions. This is what we're doing, whether we see it. Wait. Oh, I was just saying the money causes them all at the same way, sort of. Yes. So it doesn't matter what you're plugging into, they're all the same theorem. They're all the same. At, at, so long as you say at those two extremes. Right. Because one is avaricious. Because remember, the, the Aristotle in his essay, the, 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 the virtue with respect to spending money is generosity, to know when to give, how to give. The two extremes, that is the two sins, Remember, the, the, the virtue is always a mean between two extremes, always. The two extremes here are niggardliness, hoarding, and wastefulness, being spendthrift. So because extremes define, vices extreme, define both extremes, they're, they're, they're serving each other in their punishments. Um, turn quickly to the next, um, to the next, He's coming to the river Styx here, which is going to take him to the circle of her heresy, which will define the, the lower circles of hell. And it's here 
um, that he sees all of these souls under the mud with bubbles coming up. Um, what he's giving us an image of is <laughs> sullen anger. And it's really important to see this because there are different forms. In, in, in the next level, we're going to see violent anger. Here we see sullenness. It's, it's a buried anger. It doesn't get expressed. It's, it's kept beneath the surface. So we keep seeing these bubbles that speak words of the people below the surface. Um, about 42, they pass this soul. Dante steps into the boat. Um, Phlegus is the guardian. He comes to pick them up. And the boat sinks down. It's comic. And it leads um, Phlegus to say, um, who are you who come before your time? Because he's got a body. It's one of the comedies of the Commedia. Dante's dealing with all these shades. Nobody comes down there in a body. Dante's got a body. He gets into the boat and it goes down. And Phlegus says, who are you who come before your time? Though I come, I do not stay. But who, who are you in all your ugliness? You see that I am one who weeps, he answered. And then I said to him, may you weep and wail stuck here in this place forever, you damned soul, for filthy as you are, I recognize you. So the soul is weeping, fine, and notice Dante's response. He does not weep here. He doesn't feel sorry. For filthy as you are, I recognize you. With that, he stretched both hands out towards the boat, but on his guard, he said, my teacher pushed him back, away, get down there with the other curs. Virgil expresses an anger at him. And then he put his arms around my neck and kissed my face. Now, this is, this is extraordinary. They've been together for several circles now. This is the first time that Virgil's been openly affectionate to him. He put his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, Indignant soul, blessed is she whose womb you were conceived. What's that an echo of? Virgin Mary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an allusion to Christ. Um... um Dante will want to, um, Virgil compliments him. Um, then he put his, wait, may you even wail, you damned soul for filthy, I recognize you, Virgil, my teacher pushed him back away to get down there, and then he put my, why did Virgil do that here? To, to give that blessing to Dante. Because, <clears throat> stupid for the reason that he didn't grieve. The what? That he did not grieve, maybe. I mean, that his reaction was, you des I feel this is somehow right. I agree with this. Right. But what makes it right? What's Dante doing here that he hasn't done before? He's in accord with the working of the whole. Of the punishment of a soul. This is really important because up to this time, he's let his pity rule him when he shouldn't have. Emotion. Here, well, but it's, it's well, no, 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 he's, he, there's an emotion here, but it's the right emotion. Well, he, wait, wait, Patrick. You're right, okay, go ahead. Here, hold. Okay, we're almost out of time. I, I want to get to this um, classification quick. This is the first time that his, his emotional response has been in accord with God's punishment. Because before, think about this, implicitly he was critical of God. By feeling sorry for a soul, he was indirectly supporting them. Here, he's angry. May you weep and wail. That he, this guy, think about this. Uh, <clears throat> up to this point, Dante's been weeping. At this point, the sinner's weeping. Dante does not respond that way. 
You see, I'm one who weeps. And then I said to him, may you weep and wail, stuck here in this place forever, you damn soul for filth. It seems to me this is a point at which Dante's beginning to change, allegorically. That is, that he's learning to order his emotions and bring them in accord with God. Now quickly go on, I, um, I, I'm going to come back to um, the Canto 10, where Dante meets uh, Farinata and Cavacante. That's where I want to pick, but I want to, I want to get to the, um, turn to page 57, because this gets us, Canto 11 sets out the structure of hell very, very clearly. Okay. This is Aristotle and Cicero. They get to this descent, and the air coming up is so foul, they can't proceed. They have to stop. And Dante says, let's rest, but I want to learn. Virgil is proud of him again for doing it because he doesn't want to waste time. And he says that to him. And he asks about the circles. Um, and on page 57, about line 21, Virgil says this. All malice has injustice as its end an end achieved by violence or by fraud. While both are sins that earn the hate of heaven, since fraud belongs exclusively to man, God hates it more and therefore far below the fraudulent are placed and suffer most. Dante said, why are, the, why are the incontinent up here? So the sins here are the sins of incontinence, the sins here are the sins of violence, and the sins at the bottom are the sins of fraud. But here's the interesting thing here in the description he's making. Um, go down a few lines, 57. In the first of the circles below are all the violence, since violence can be used against three persons into three concentric rounds it's divided. Violence can be done against God, to self, or to one's neighbor. Go down. By violent means, a man can kill his neighbor or wound him grievously. So that sins against neighbor. So here, at the level of violence, there are three levels. Okay? Violent against neighbors. Man can raise violent hands against himself and his own goods, so that in the second round, paying the debt that never can be paid, are suicides, self-robbers of your world, or those who gamble all their wealth away, and weep up there when they should have rejoiced. So violence against oneself. So others against oneself. Um, one can use violence against the deity by heartfelt disbelief and cursing him, or by despising nature and God's bounty. Therefore, the smallest round stamps with its seal both Sodom and Cahor. Sodom was where all the um, the sexual things took place. Cahors is where the usury went through the roof. Fraud that gnaws the conscience of its servants can be used on one who puts his trust in you or else on one who has no trust invested. The latter sort seems only to destroy the bond of love that nature gives to man. So in the second circle, there are nests of, he gives all the, um, the, the levels of... Uh, what's called fraud, simple. 
The former kind of fraud both disregards the love nature enjoys and that extra bond between men which creates a special trust. So at the level of fraud, there are two kinds of fraud. A fraud that does involve no special trust, which will play out with hypocrites, flatterers, dabbers, and sorcery, you know, all those. And also fraud which involves a special trust. Because that kind is worse because people are putting their faith in you. So at the level of um, that fraud, fraud complex, we find people who have betrayed family loyalties, um, Judas who betrayed Christ, Brutus and Cassius who betrayed Caesar. So what, what he's just done is laid out the, the structure of hell, going over in 59. Um, Dante says, why are those people above? Why are they not included in this circle? Have you forgotten how your ethics reads those terms that explicates in such detail the three conditions that the heavens hate, incontinence, malice, and bestiality? Do you not remember how incontinence offends God's least and merits the least blame? If you will consider well the doctrine and then recall to mind who those souls were suffering pain above, that is the leopard, the sins of incontinence, Outside the walls, you will clearly see why they're separated from those malicious ones and why God's vengeance beats down upon their souls less heavily. These are the graver sins because the sins below here include an element of malice. Incontinence are sins of weakness. They don't as directly involve the, the fraud of the mind. One can't help. He's, he's so overcome by something, he can't stop himself. Instead of working to overcome that sin or looking for grace, he just stays in it. All of the sins below, the leopard, or sorry, the lion and the she-wolf, involve an element of malice. So what we're watching is the will, in, in the descent downhill, the will, the human will, is getting more and more obdurate, more and more stubborn, more and more violent. So malice, a bad will, wants to hurt other people. That's the level of violence. The difference is with fraud, the, the malice um, takes a more intellectual form. People are deceiving others to get what they want. So, one second. so here's the level of hell. Remember, when Dante went up the mountain to begin, he got pushed back by the leopard, the lion, the she-wolf. And the she-wolf was the most vicious. And Virgil said, you cannot go up till you go down. Now what we're seeing is that Dante's learning to face those in himself. The, levels, or the sins of incontinence are sins of weakness. The sins below that involve the will in a malice and using the intellect in a, in a, in a way deliberately evil. Okay. Why is violence above fraud? Right here, let me violence give you... Violence is something I think that's worse than fraud. Yeah, I, I don't. Here, let me give. And if any, I'm trying to find an example. If any of you um, have read Charles Dickens, if you've read um, Oliver Twist, you know that Bill Sykes beats Nancy to a pulp. He's just a violent man. If you read Othello and watch Iago, you watch a man who's much closer to a demon because he's using his intellect at every point to destroy. So fraud by its nature is more sinister, it's more demonic, it's closer to an angelic thing. A, a man can get violent and hurt a person. He can do that out of a lack of self-control. 
When a person uses fraud, he's, he's using the highest gift that man has, his intellect, deliberately, spiritually, to destroy other people. But you can have violence that is has fraud tendencies. Right. You, you can know? wait, wait, just here. <laughs> we're gonna look at it as a as as a base emotion. Let's say if some you just get really angry all of a sudden and no, you get something no, exactly premeditated versus it's a yeah, kind of passion right, kind of right. yeah. like there's, just there's for, a big difference. Right? Just when we get to purgatory oh, this is gonna be <laughs> when we get to purgatory this is gonna be inverted. It'll, it'll be the mountain going up here. Pride, envy, wrath, not anger, wrath. It'll go. If, when you watch that, you know there's no way in which pride isn't involved in every one of our sins because that's the base sin. Here, at the, at the center of hell, we see that what's at the center of all sins in some way is the loss of the... Remember, Dante said, the, the souls who have lost the good of the intellect. So the, all of the souls don't see they've lost the good of the intellect. But as you get closer and closer to the, to the worst sins, they're sins that most directly involve the intellect because of premeditation. There's something more sinister in being able to plan something out. You can get away. When a man beats up a, when Sykes beats up Nancy, that's a violent act. But if you set him next to Iago, I mean, there's, Iago's a sinister, evil man. Um, I think you said deception enters in in pride more deceptive, and that would be using the mind in a negative way, the intellect in a negative way, and it's almost like we lose the mind, lose the mind, lose the mind, or give it up, and then it flips, and it becomes rotten at that point. We use it in actively. Activity, it becomes Remember the, the the good of the intellect. The the good of the intellect is goodness itself. That's the being. When you start using the mind, the best thing for you, the, the power, your power for doing evil grows tremendously. Um, Conspiracy to commit murder. And you'll see, yeah, and you'll see, you'll see violence being committed everywhere down here in this level. But there's a distinction between those sins that are purely violent and those that involve a sinister use of the mind. It